Times Like Now is an interview program. Interviews with interesting people who are doing cool stuff. You can find past episodes wherever you get your podcasts. Please like and subscribe. Mark Evans is my guest. He's a documentary filmmaker, and his new film focuses on the life and the work of claymation pioneer Will Vinton. Vinton and his company brought stop-motion animation to the world with the California Raisins, but he was eventually fired from his own company. Mark Evans is my guest today on Times Like Now. Hello, Mark. Thank you for joining me today. Uh, Yeah, thanks for having me, Trevor. A little bit about this claymation act or the the art of it. Will Vinton, Portland legend, your film called Clay Dream is focusing on Will Vinton. Tell me a little bit about when did this production start? When did you start following Will with a camera? I mean, yeah, I mean, this goes way back to 2015 or 16, probably 2016. um, I was wrapping up uh, my previous film, The Glamour and the Squalor, and kind of just, you know, always looking for new stories, new ideas. And I'd come across an article um, about Will that kind of outlined his his career and also went into kind of how um, everything unraveled for his studio. And as I was reading this article, I really felt like it played out like a movie. Um, and I was familiar with Will's name. I was familiar with a lot of his characters and shows that he'd created, you know, in the 80s and 90s that I kind of grew up with. So I was, um, so there was the nostalgia factor, but really the story was what intrigued me and how this kind of rise and fall and all these twists and turns that, like I said, when I was reading the article, it felt like a movie. And so, um, I just, I I think it was that day I got really excited about it and, um, thought this, this could be an interesting next film. So, uh, like I said, I think it was that day I reached out to Will. I found an email address on his website and got an email back. Um, pretty quickly, I think, from uh, what said it was his his assistant, which I found out later was his wife, and um, just asked, like, hey, can we get together and talk about this? And the response was like, sure, we can get together, but I'm probably not really interested in making a documentary or anything like that. But I thought that was maybe, you know, that was an in. So we, a couple weeks later, we got together, got some coffee in Portland, and it was, you know, like a three-hour meeting. And I thought we totally hit it off. And I thought, oh, no, this is great. I think he's going to want to do this. And when I followed up a few days later, he he was like, yeah, it was nice to meet, but I still don't think I really want to do it. Um, so that was kind of how it started, but we just stayed in touch over probably about a six month period. And, and over time, I think it was just a lot of, you know, kind of trust building and things like that. And, um, and, and he decided finally, let's, let's, let's go for it. And then from that point on, he was just totally open. Anytime I wanted to shoot something, whether it be an interview or, you know, B-roll or something like that, or if, uh, you know, access to his archives, which was pretty huge. I mean, a lot of, he, he had a big collection of things that he saved. Um, you know, he wasn't certainly the only resource, but there was a lot of stuff that came from Will. He just had both a basement and a garage full of stuff that anytime I wanted to go over and look through, he, he, he was game. So he was a great, um, not only subject, but, um, you know, partner in a, in a lot of things, you know, he didn't have any, uh, um, input necessarily into the, um, you know, the editing or the way that I was going to tell the story, but, um, the collaboration as far as like just the materials, he was, he was a total open book. Yeah. It really feels that way in the movie as well. An interesting character, such an interesting man and artist and, uh, such a history with going back to, the the beginnings of claymation. I mean, he, he coined the word as a, a mix between clay and animation. Of course, anybody that listening that doesn't know Will Vinton, remember the California Raisins or the Noid, 
or so many other and the M&Ms that's him as well. Yeah, and, you know, what's funny about those is that all three of those examples which are huge, you know, in, in pop culture, they're all commercials, you know. That was certainly and and one of the themes that we kind of go through in the film is like art versus commerce and it ends up playing out, you know, towards the end of the film in a very big way, but um you know, it's interesting that three of his biggest creations are for commercials, but then he also had these art films, these short films that he won an Oscar for, was nominated for many other ones uh, that were just pure creativity um, and really showing, you know, just very high end art. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I, I do find it kind of, you know, I, I guess ironic that uh, probably three of the characters that, you know, the M&Ms, the, the Noid and the California Raisins that he's known for most are, are commercials. They were for brands. <laughs> Yeah, it I mean that's that's the big audience and and that's the big the bigger paycheck than a passion project like Closed Monday which is the one that he won well him and his partner uh won mm-hmm. the Oscar for. And that's a whole nother story between him and his you know, original partner. Um but I thought about that what you just mentioned that if he had somehow released Mark Twain after the success of those other 3 it would have been a, a, a different audience, a bit of a more educated audience because Mark Twain is such an amazing piece of work. It's so good and famous now, but at the time it was not received well. Yeah. And, and I don't, you know, I don't even know if it's famous now. I, I think there's people of a certain age probably rem- might remember it when they were kids, but it, but they weren't the audience for it. And that was the whole thing is that it, you know, it was marketed towards kids and it was really more of a sophisticated film for adults. But this was in the mid eighties when um, animated film wasn't really targeted towards adults. It was, it was a kid's genre and that's, you know, cer- certainly changed a lot. Um but it's, you know, yeah, it's, it's, as Will puts it, it's the zenith of claymation ever, all the techniques they're all put into this one film and kids that did see it, remember it today, because there's this one scene called the mysterious stranger that I come to, came to find out really terrified a lot of kids. Cause again, it wasn't really meant for them. Um, so to the extent that it's known today, it's, um, it, it's mo- mostly known for that film, but it would be great if, if people, you know, if that film kind of got, um, a second wind and got to, got to be seen by a new audience in, you know, in, in, in the, in the 2020s. It would be fantastic. And, and it has a, a sort of cult following amongst animation artists and animation has increased in popularity uh, so much over the years. I think it has grown an audience a little bit, you know, not, not what it could be, I suppose, but it did set the standard for a lot of that kind of work. I got to visit Will Vinton Studios in the mid-90s, maybe just before the the crash, and got to see the figuring of the Mark Twain and some of the others that were in the lobby of the original Will Vinton Studios. I met Will a few times, and just a joy to be around. He really was, and um, yeah, great, a great time. The The animation or excuse me the 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 movie clay dreams you've been playing festivals where has it been recently i mean yeah it just started it had you know we're recording this on june 25th um it had its world premiere as part of the tribeca festival on june 13th and then um, i just got back from annecy france where we had the international premiere on june uh 
18th, I believe it was. So, um, you know, it's a week ago. So it's really just just been uh, premiered. Um, and then we've got some festivals coming up. I think the only one that's been announced that I can talk about is the Melbourne Australia Documentary Festival, which is a great festival in Australia. That, um, that'll that be the, the Australia premiere, um, which is in July. Um, but it's, it's kind of an interesting thing because... There, you know, there people have been talking about it, and there's been press. But as of right now, this moment, it can't be seen anywhere because it can be seen like during those festivals. And the Tribeca Festival, for instance, was, you know, anybody in the U.S. could have accessed um, uh, up to a certain point, accessed the the film during that festival. But now that that festival's over, that's done. Um, so we're we're hoping to have a wider distribution um, here shortly. And there's been some conversations going on about that. Um, so hopefully, you know, sometime this year, it'll be released for the public to see. Um, but, uh, but there will be some other festivals that I think will have some, some online hybrid, um, opportunities. So people could probably stream it that way too, in the, uh, in the coming months. That's good to know. Um, where would somebody find your website or your information? Uh, me personally. So I've got, um, a little family business with my wife, Angela and our 10 year old son, Jude. Um, we've kind of just got this little creative studio. It's called the Macaw. So, uh, the Macaw dot studio. Um, so T H E for the, and then M C C A W dot studio is our company website. And it's just, like I said, we're kind of like this little boutique creative company. So we have documentary production. Um, we released two books last year, uh, during the pandemic, which we had never done before, but one of them was a children's book. It's an ABC book that my son had, uh, come up with the idea when he was like three or four, um, about his favorite bands and where they were from. That was like the book that he wanted to read at that time. So it took a while, but we created that and put it out last year. Um, a little cocktail book that we put out as well too, but that is, that's kind of where, you know, we combined as a family, our creative, uh, endeavors under this one, this one umbrella. Um, so it's the macaw.studio. Super cool. That's great. I'd like to see that book. Um, back on, on the movie was, did you write, produce and direct this? Was this all your project or were you working with others on this? Yeah. I mean, certainly not, not all my project, but yeah, I, 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 you know, came up with it. Um, you know, so it was the producer at the beginning and, you know, obviously when you're, you know, uh, uh, indie documentary, you're wearing a lot of hats, but, you know, came up with it and then got everything going with Will. Um, I brought on a producer, Kevin Moyer, who's from Portland, um, who was my music supervisor on the glamour and the squalor. Um, and then, so started kind of with us too. And then we brought on our cinematographer, Jason Rourke really early. And it was for a long time, for a couple of years, it was just the three of us essentially, um, you know, going and doing the interviews, you know, all over the country with, with other subjects and with Will himself and collecting things, collecting archives. And then um, I think it was about two years into the project, I got approached by um, a production company called XYZ Films out of LA. And they, um, they, they're, they're a great and well-known production company, mostly for narrative films, but they had just started a documentary program at that time. And they were just releasing their first uh, feature documentary called Framing John DeLorean, which is a great film about, uh, you know, John DeLorean, the car maker. And it's kind of a hybrid documentary where there's scripted scenes um, and Alec Baldwin plays DeLorean. Um, so they, they were finishing that film looking for other projects and they, they had actually the producer Tamir Ardone had come across the same article I had a couple years earlier and thought what well, the same thing I did that this would make a great film. And as he started researching it, he realized that this was already being done by me. And so he reached out and we got together and kind of hit it off and, and, uh, joined forces and they were tremendous partners. Um, and from, from there, you know, I was editing for a long time, but we ultimately ended up bringing on editor Lucas Seller 
who helped finish the film and really bring it to, to the next level. Um, our composer, Heather McIntosh. Um, so there, there's, a, you know, certainly, and then other, you know, producers that came on that, that really helped get the film finished as well too. But, um, uh, so yeah, I mean, if you look at the cre- end credits, you know, it's, it's, uh, it, it takes, it takes a lot of people <laughs> to finish a feature film. Yes, of course. The access to the archives was really impressive. We got to see pieces of animation that I don't know if I'd ever seen before on some of these older, uh, some of his first works in 16 millimeter in his days in Berkeley. Um, mm-hmm. That must have been that must have been very engaging for you to just be able to swim through Will Vinton's, you know, treasure chest of stuff and how you cut this material into your film is really a, a great. It almost puts Will as his characters it really shines in that way that he was putting himself into his work and and you really kind of use your editing techniques to to show that really impressive what you did here and what you put together how long did it take you yeah thanks well i mean overall it was about a five-year process and you know a lot of that is just like chasing interviews and chasing the materials and things like that um and then we, then I was editing along the way. And so, but it was, uh, you know, probably about a year ago is when we, we got in touch with Lucas Seller, the editor. Um, and we took kind of, you know, the story that, that I'd been making and just really, you know, bumped it up just, and, and Lucas was able to do a lot of things that I was probably way too close to as, as the director and producer. Um, and again, at the time, the editor that I knew there were certain things that I wasn't really getting right that, but, but I just didn't know how to do it. And so we got together. And was like, I'd love to do that. I'd love to bring more of Will's personality, more of his character, more of his, his strengths and flaws out. And there was just all these things that Lucas was able to really bring out. Um, and, but I appreciate saying that about the, you know, the use, how we use the clips, like that was very important to not just show the work, but to have the work, um, uh, mean something. And there was two major things, you know, one, there was, the, there was the idea of Will as a person, he throughout really his whole life, he, he didn't really let people in. A lot of people struggled, like who is Will Vinton? And, um, and I think we got to crack that a little bit in the film, but also the reality is that the way that he, that he, you know, he knows about a lot of artists, but certainly the way that he expressed himself was through his work and through his characters. So we wanted to make sure that the pieces that we used of his work would do one of two things, either really help us get to know Will, um, because that is how he was getting, letting people know him was through his character. So we wanted the pieces that we chose, you know, we could have just shown, you know, random clips, but we wanted them to really represent him um, or just represent the story, you know, as the story goes on um, and everything with his company is happening. Uh, we wanted to choose clips that we felt represented that moment. Um, so that was a lot of fun. That was probably one of my most favorite uh, parts of the editing process. Um, but as you said earlier, we also had so much material. Um, so it made it, it didn't make it easy. I mean, in some cases it makes it harder when you've got so many choices to make, but it certainly made it a lot of fun to be able to go through, you know, all the way from his early work when he was at Berkeley in college and just creating stuff with friends that, um, you know, that we were fortunate that he saved to, um, to, to, towards the end of the process, we were able to, a lot of the short films that he did, we had in the quality that Will gave us, which was fine. It was usable. We were, you know, we were going to use it in the film, but the um, Academy um, had preserved his film. So he had sent at some point, he had sent the film reels, the final films to the Academy and they had digitized them in 2k and 4k. So 
uh, by the end of it, we were able to uh, show all of those films and our film that, you know, we, we, we did the film in 4K, but a lot of that stuff that we originally had was not that quality, but we were able to get it all up-resed into 4K. So um, it was uh, it was pretty amazing to see it in the highest quality as well. Yeah, that makes for that makes for a better viewing. But uh, yeah, amazing uh, editing and filming with the material that was done when his uh, what, what did you call that? You wouldn't call it a court case when they're sitting around the big table, Phil Knight and Travis Knight and Will and the lawyers. That material mm-hmm. yeah, so, was that yeah, material the de- they, deposition. The depositions, yes, they were there were three cameras at least in those in that room documenting that episode yeah and and i had nothing no i had nothing to do with that 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 happened in the you know early 2000s i might have been shot in like 2003 2004 um and that was you know god that when we got that footage that was kind of a game changer because i always knew that that was going to be part of the story but i didn't know that we were going to have uh, that material that actually was in the room. And like you said, I think they, you know, three cameras and we'll, we'll have that shot. We'll, um, I don't think he ever had any idea why he was going to shoot it, but he had the intuition to shoot these depositions and, and shoot it well, you know? Um, so he hired, he hired a team and, but I, I didn't know about it though. I didn't know about that footage that it existed until two years into the project. Um, and will just casually, I was, you know, at his place looking through materials and he just casually mentioned, he asked, he goes, did I ever give you the deposition? And I was like, what do you mean? Like, are there like, there's transcripts of it or something? And he's like, no, we shot it. <laughs> and, uh, so I was like, uh, no, you, you never did. And so he, we found the boxes. They were these old beta tapes. They had never been digitized or anything they'd just been sitting in his basement collecting dust for you know 15 years and uh so i got back home i was living in san diego at the time got back home and found a place that could transfer them and i still remember you know when we when i started going through it and realized what we had there that that's when you know the project really kind of took on a different life at that point because i knew that that would be a framing device that we could basically introduce at the beginning of the film and keep coming back to um and uh yeah, it was it was amazing to have that material. Yeah, that really is is you know ultimately the crux of the story is when it all starts to go bad and how his his dream begins to unravel and that's where it was happening literally in that room at that moment. The Phil Knight, I remember when this happened, and many many people would say it was a a takeover, but it was pretty sneaky. The kind of contractual things that Phil Knight and Travis Knight did to Will Vinton to, to literally take his company from him. Do you want to explain a little bit about that from, from your side and what you know of it? Yeah. I mean, and I tried to be in the film, um, you know, not like choosing sides, but just try to kind of show how it played out because um, it's definitely an interesting thing. Like, again, like I said, that one of the themes is art versus commerce and it plays out with Will's own stuff. Um, you know, he had the commercial stuff and he had the, the kind of, you know, art, art films, that he made and um, and he, and he made his name kind of on the commercial stuff, but also it plays out with, you know, if you want to say for lack of better terms, Will Vinton versus Phil Knight, this art versus commerce um, battle that they had. And, but, but it is interesting because I think, you know, if you watch the movie, I don't want to give too much away because I, I, I do like people to kind of put their own judgment on how things happened. Uh, you know, you might talk to more artistic, creative people and they are going to look at it and say, Oh, I can't believe what happened. To, Phil, to, to Will Vinton, I can't believe that Phil Knight treated him this way, I, I, like, and, and they're just up in arms. But then you might talk to some business people 
that look at it and say, well, that's just business, you know, and Will made mistakes and Phil did what he had to do. So I think it's really an interesting, and, and I, and I, again, I, you know, there could have been opportunities to try to tell the story, uh, you know, more one-sided, but I did want it to just play out as kind of truth, as truthful as possible. And, um, and I was very curious to see how people would put their own um, judgments on, on, on how it played out. And, and it's been interesting seeing, you know, the response, you know, from the two festivals that we premiered the film at, um, the, you know, how, how people are talking about that. Well, please share. I am kind of curious how the, how the audience have been responding to your, to your new film. Yeah. I mean, the, the response has been great. And as far as that goes, it's just been kind of across the board, the response. I mean, again, it just depends on the type of person, you know, there's certain publications, there's, you know, there's people that are, you know, very creative. I was looking at this article by Cartoon Brew, which is a great animated, uh, animation website and their writer, their review was very, uh, critical and talked about this, like, you know, this vicious battle between Phil Knight and Will Vinton and, you know, the company when, when, you know, again, I don't want to give too much away, but, um, you know, there's a big storyline, um, for, for the animation industry. And, um, and this particular writer was very critical and he, it left a bad taste and really bad taste in his mouth, but what the Knights did, but then there's other people that might look at it and say, you know, no, that's just business. Yeah, I guess, I guess that's how, where you stand on it. Um, what, what people see your past film, the documentary about Marco Collins, the radio DJ from Seattle. He was kind of the kind of the voice of the Seattle sound. Your documentary, this is how I first saw, saw your work. Uh, it was at a Portland Film Festival. Festival. That film, uh, Glamour and the Squalor. When did that come about? Was that your first documentary or do you have other work that I may not have seen? Yeah, that was, that was my first feature. And, you know, there, there was a film... Um, before that, that was kind of like, you know, for me, like, I call it like my film school, essentially that, um, but that film is still actually in progress. It's been like this 11 year journey that I started with my brother in Haiti. So, um, but, but the glamour and the squalor was, yeah, that was the first, the first feature film that I'd released that I'd, you know, directed. Making documentaries is very different from making narrative feature films. What's your takeaway or what have you learned or gleaned from following these two interesting characters in your first two documentaries? You know, sometimes I, I kind of wonder like, man, I can't believe that, that people let a documentary, uh, allow a documentary to be made about them because we, as you know, the filmmakers, we we're, we're, it's, it's so intrusive. We come into their lives and, um, and, and that's where I think just honesty and trying to be as transparent as possible up front is so important and, and making sure subjects know like, you know, yes, we're going to go over all the positives, but you can't just have this like total puff piece because then nobody's going to take it seriously. You know, movies have to have conflict. They've got to have drama. Um, so that's super important. But then even, even then you can't, you don't know how things are going to shake out because you don't know how production is going to go. You don't know if anything's going to happen while, you know, in the storyline while you're making it, you don't know if you're interviewing people, what you're going to uncover. So you, you try to be as honest as possible upfront about, uh, to set the expectations, but even then you, you, you never know exactly what's going to happen. And, um, you know, I, I, I'm probably personally kind of a private person. So I just think about it sometimes like I can't imagine having my whole life, you know, everything, my strengths and flaws, um, all being out there for the world to see. Um, but I'm so grateful that people do open themselves up for that because, you know, think about, you know, documentary, for instance, just about how many great stories and great people we've learned about from that. Um, 
So, but, it, but I think, um, you know, I, I never, I, I didn't, I don't necessarily think like, oh, my films, you know, I want to do like biographical films, but it, you know, I loved Marco's story when I first heard it, which was also, I found, you know, there was an article that came out that I read that I thought was really interesting and that his story would be good as a documentary. Um, and then same thing with Will. And I think I do like biographical, even, you know, I, I like reading biographical books, for instance. Um, but, uh, so yeah, I, but, but, but like I said, sometimes I'm just, it's just, it just, it astonishes me that, um, we were allowed into people's lives that they, that they, they that they let us do that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, when somebody's living a life like that, you know, like you said, some, some of the scars you may not want to be shown, but it really makes for a better film, obviously. Uh, that movie, Glamour and the Squalor and Marco, did that go on to other festivals? I mean, I saw it in Portland. Did you go like internationally with that film? Yeah. I mean, it played at festivals kind of all over the world and then it got picked up um, for domestic uh, distribution. And then also we sold it to Red Bull media house, which, you know, which is Red Bull's um, media uh, division. And we gave them kind of worldwide, worldwide rights for it. And I, I, I haven't necessarily seen exactly what they've done with it, but they, had the rights to all the other territories and you know, it's on their platform and everything, but that can be seen on, I think Amazon prime is probably the best place to watch that movie, but it's also on Tubi and voodoo now as well too, which I think are free platforms, which that's kind of a new, a new distribution deal that just came out. Um, so that's definitely available. Um, but yeah, it was fun. I mean, that played at a lot, a lot of festivals, you know, certainly around the country, but even international as well. And, um, and that's definitely one of the more, you know, fun parts is being able to travel with the film and, and see it with new audiences. And so that's been a little bit, that's been different for Clay Dream because, you know, the Tribeca Festival, um, that was a virtual premiere. So, you know, it was all people all over the country could have access to it. You didn't have to be in New York, but, but it also wasn't this big event, this big screening, um, which, you know, it's always fun to see the work with an audience. And, and, and I think we'll have that opportunity now as things continue to slowly open up. I think this, uh, probably this fall, there's going to be some opportunities for some uh, in-person screenings. So that'll be a lot of fun to see it with an audience. Well, yeah, if you get up here into the into the northwest corner of the United States, I'd love to see the film somewhere locally around here. What's next? Do you have anything that you're researching that you're working on that you might let me know about? Or are you still just focused on on Clay Dream and showing it? Yeah, there, there's two. Well, one, I want to finish this this film in Haiti with my brother. Um, and then there's two projects that I've been developing for a while. There's a kind of a, a true crime uh, murder mystery documentary based in uh, Alaska that I've been working on for a couple of years that we're, we're trying to get made. Um, that that it's, it's, you know, we're, we're pitching it as kind of like a Twin Peaks meets Fargo type show, but it's, you know, it's, it's, it's a true story to be documentary. Um, so definitely excited about that one. And then there's, um, a show, probably a show, um, documentary show kind of that centers around the, the stoic, the stoic philosophy, stoicism, um, you know, which was founded 2000 years ago, but there is a very modern angle to this in a lot of ways, um, people that are practicing it and applying it to their lives today. Um, a lot of what very well-known celebrities that are practicing stoicism. So, so those are the two projects that I'm, um, spending most time on developing and pitching and um, one, of, one of those two, or hopefully both of those two will be most likely the next, next projects to go. Yeah. Looking forward to that. Uh, well, to both of those, but that stoicism, I, I read about that f- philosophy myself, Mark, thank you so much. Um, again, where would people find your material? What is that website? 
Yeah, I, I think the best place would just be www.themacaw, T-H-E-M-C-C-A-W dot studio, which is my uh, little family creative um, company. Keep an eye out for Mark Evans' new documentary, Play Dream, uh, about Will Vinton. Thank you once again, and have a good evening. Thanks, Trevor. Good talking to you. Past episodes of Times Like Now can be found wherever you get your podcasts. Please do like and subscribe. My name is Trevor Collins. I can be reached Trevor at timeslikenow.com. And thank you to the letter J, Cody Robertson, for original music. I look forward to speaking with you all next time. <laughs>